You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. So open our Bibles to the Scripture reading this morning. We're going to read from 1 Kings 8, verses 22 to 53. If your Bible is like mine, there is a little title above that which says, Solomon's Prayer of Dedication. This was at the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel, spread out his hands toward heaven, and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised, and with your hand you have fulfilled it, as it is today. Now, Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, the promises you made to him when you said, you shall never fail to have a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel if only your sons are careful in all they do to walk before me as you have done. And now, O God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David my father come true. But will God really dwell on earth? The the heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy. O Lord my God, hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open toward this temple night and day, this place of which you said, My name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, And when you hear, forgive. When a man wrongs his neighbor and is required to take an oath, and he comes and swears the oath before your altar in this temple, then hear from heaven and act. Judge between your servants, condemning the guilty and bringing down on his own head what he has done. Declare the innocent not guilty, and so establish his innocence. When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you. And when they turn back to you and confess your name, praying and making supplication to you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land you gave to their fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people have sinned against you, and when they pray toward this place and confess your name, and turn from their sin because you have afflicted them. Then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land you gave your people for an inheritance. When famine or plague comes to the land or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, or when an enemy besieges them in any of their cities, whatever disaster or disease may come, And when a prayer or plea is made by any of your people Israel, 
each one aware of the afflictions of his own heart and spreading out his hands toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Forgive and act. Deal with each man according to all he does, since you know his heart. For you alone know the hearts of all men, so that they will fear you all the time they live in the land you gave our fathers. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for men will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people Israel and may know that this house I have built bears your name. When your people go to war against their enemies, wherever you send them, and when they pray to the Lord toward the city you have chosen and the temple I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to the enemy, who takes them captive to his own land, far away or near. And if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive, and repent and plead with you in the land of their conquerors, and say, We have sinned, we have done wrong, we have acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul, in the land of their enemies who took them captive, and pray to you toward the land you gave their fathers, toward the city you have chosen, and the temple I have built for your name. Then, from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their plea, and uphold their cause. And forgive your people who have sinned against you. Forgive all the offenses they have committed against you, and cause their conquerors to show them mercy. For they are your people and your inheritance, whom you brought out of Egypt, out of that iron-smelting furnace." May your eyes be open to your servant's plea and to the plea of your people Israel. And may you listen to them whenever they cry out to you. For you singled them out from all the nations of the world to be your own inheritance, just as you declared through your servant Moses when you, O sovereign Lord, brought our fathers out of Egypt. The sermon this morning, we are considering God's word as it's been confessed by the church in Lord's Day 45. Let's now read that together. We'll be especially focusing on question and answer 117, but we'll read the entire Lord's Day. Why is prayer necessary for Christians? Because prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness which God requires of us. Moreover, God will give His grace and the Holy Spirit only to those who constantly and with heartfelt longing ask Him for these gifts and thank Him for them. What belongs to a prayer which pleases God and is heard by Him? First, we must from the heart call upon the one true God only who has revealed Himself in His Word for all that He has commanded us to pray. Second, we must thoroughly know our need and misery so that we may humble ourselves before God. Third, 
We must rest on this firm foundation that, although we do not deserve it, God will certainly hear our prayer for the sake of Christ our Lord, as He has promised us in His Word. What has God commanded us to ask of Him? All the things we need for body and soul, as included in the prayer which Christ our Lord Himself taught us. What is the Lord's Prayer? And there follows the Lord's Prayer. Beloved congregation of Christ, why is it so hard for us to pray? I think you know what I'm talking about. It's happened to me and I'm sure it's happened to you too. You're praying, you're speaking with the holy God who created heaven and earth and everything in them. And then suddenly your mind drifts and you start thinking about something or someone else. Maybe you even fall asleep or you forget to pray or your prayers are superficial and they start to all sound the same. Well, brothers and sisters, take comfort because we're not the first ones to struggle with the practice of prayer. Believers throughout the centuries have faced this and they have written about it and they have spoken about it. Take Martin Luther, for example. We're told that Martin Luther had a puppy. His puppy's name was Topol. Strange name for a puppy, but I guess that's a good German name for a puppy. Topol. And one day Topol was at the dinner table looking for scraps from his master. And he was watching with his mouth open and with fixed, motionless eyes. And Luther said, Oh, if I could only pray the way this dog watches the meat. All his thoughts are concentrated on that piece of meat. Otherwise, he has no thought, wish, or hope. All of the problems we have with prayer leads us to the inevitable conclusion that prayer is not something that's natural for us. We're not born as people who automatically and easily speak with their Creator. Instead, we have to be taught how to pray. That's why the Catechism devotes this last section to this very important subject. We confess that prayer is the most important part of our thankfulness. It's even more important than the law of God. Prayer is where our thankfulness starts. When we realize how great a salvation we have in Jesus Christ, and something stirs in our hearts, and from our hearts we have a desire to please God and to not only to please Him with our lives, but also to converse with Him, to live in a healthy family relationship with our Father in heaven. A relationship in which we talk. We desire to ask our Father for more grace and for richer measures of His Holy Spirit. And all of that begins with prayer that pleases God and is heard by Him. 
And so this morning, we will consider how to pray in that way. And we'll see three things. First of all, that we need a proper address for our prayers. Second, that we need a proper self-assessment. And then finally, that we also need a proper faith for our prayers. Well, a moment ago, we read that very long prayer of Solomon in 1 Kings 8. And before we look at some of the content of that prayer, we should also consider what we read about that prayer in the following chapter. In 1 Kings 9, God tells Solomon that he heard his prayer. And he answered him, and he will answer him. In other words, God put his stamp of approval on that prayer, on what Solomon prayed. This was a prayer which truly pleased God and was heard by him. And so it is also a prayer from which we can learn. Now notice the way that Solomon begins this God-pleasing prayer. He says, O Lord God of Israel. Literally, he says, O Yahweh God of Israel. Lord there is in all capital letters, and when it's in all capital letters, that's God's special name, Yahweh. The word God in Hebrew is Elohim, or sometimes shortened to El. And Elohim or El could equally be used for false gods, such as Molech or Baal or Ashtoreth and so on. The same is not true for Yahweh. There was no other God who had that personal name. Yahweh was Yahweh. And He was also the God of Israel. It's true that at various times Israel did serve false gods, but only Yahweh was truly the God of Israel. In other words, He was the God who had made a covenant with that people. He had entered into a covenant relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Solomon refers to this covenant promise and its further outworking at the end of verse 23, and then also the covenant with David in, in verse 24. Solomon also acknowledges that Yahweh is entirely unique. He does that in, in verse 23 when he says, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. With these words, Solomon confesses his faith that no one compares with Yahweh. Of course, we find similar thoughts expressed elsewhere in the, in the scriptures, in various prayers and songs. In Psalm 77, for instance, Asaph says, Your ways, O God, are holy. What God is so great as our God? In Micah, Micah, Micah's name, by the way, means who is like Yahweh. In Micah 7.18, we read, Who is a God like you? Who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? There is only one true God, only one God who saves sinners. And the Bible teaches that it is this one true God whom we are to call upon in prayer. When we pray, we don't pray upon to some generic vanilla God. He must be the one true God only, the one who has revealed himself in his word. 
The true God who has revealed Himself as the triune God, three in one. He is the Father, our Creator. Created us and He also sustains and upholds everything by His mighty hand. We must call upon the true God who has revealed Himself in the person of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Don't ever forget that the one true God is the God of the Gospel, the God of good news. And then we must also call upon the true God who has revealed Himself in the person of the Holy Spirit as our renewer and sanctifier. Here too, there's good news. He doesn't leave us as we are. He changes us. And so we must call upon the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think we can all agree with that in in a kind of a general way, but then someone might raise the question, are we then allowed to address all three persons of the Trinity? After all, the Lord's Prayer teaches us to pray to God the Father. So does that mean that we shouldn't pray to the Lord Jesus? Or that we should never pray to the Holy Spirit? Those are good questions. And to answer those questions, we need to consider at least a couple of points. First of all, the character of the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is a model. It is a pattern. It was intended to be a guide for prayer. And we can see this in the fact that elsewhere in the New Testament... The Lord Jesus taught His disciples to pray in His name. But when He gives them the Lord's Prayer, you don't see we pray this in Jesus' name at the end of that prayer, do we? This indicates that there is freedom when it comes to prayer. Though the Lord's Prayer gives us valuable instruction, we're not bound exclusively to its words or to its formulations. The second point we need to consider is that there is variety in the prayers recorded for us in the New Testament. When the apostles prayed in the book of Acts, we don't hear them praying the Lord's Prayer. We don't even hear them using any of its words or alluding to it. Although definitely some of the the thoughts are there. More to the point, the apostles and the early church themselves, they did pray directly to the Lord Jesus. At least on some occasions. We see an example of that with Stephen at the end of Acts 7. As he was being stoned, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I'd also mention Paul, his Maranatha prayer at the end of 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 16, that is also a prayer to Jesus Christ. And the fact that the model prayer of the Lord Jesus teaches us to call on the Father suggests that addressing the Holy Spirit and addressing the Son in prayer would not be our regular practice our regular habit in prayer. But the fact that the early church did call on the Son in prayer, and the fact that it is recorded for us in Scripture, 
tells us that the freedom is there to do so. And if the freedom is there to call on the Son in prayer, then why not also the Holy Spirit? So as we pray, we must pray to the one true God only, but we have the freedom to address each of the three persons of the Trinity as well. Again, our normal, regular practice is to address the Father. But from time to time, we may also address the Son and the Holy Spirit. We might address the Lord Jesus in our prayers when we reflect on what a great Savior He is and when we stand in awe of Him. How could you not address Him with words of praise at such a time? And when our bodies are breaking down, and when we are suffering, when we're faced with trials and temptations, we might call to Him as the One who understands, the One who has lived a human existence on this earth. Hebrews 2.11 tells us that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Think about that. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and He's our brother. That's amazing, isn't it? And Hebrews 2.18, a little further in that chapter, says, building on that thought, that because He Himself suffered when He was tempted... He is able to help those who are being tempted. So loved ones, call out to your Savior when you are tempted and when you suffer. Because He knows. He hears. He understands. And He will act for you. So we can address the Lord Jesus in our prayers at certain times. We might also address the Holy Spirit directly in our prayers. We might do that when we earnestly desire His work to further our sanctification. We should desire that all the time. But at certain moments, we feel that desire more acutely. And when we we do that, we need to remember that the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. He is not like gravity or electricity or something of that nature. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a person. A person with whom we can communicate. A person to whom we can pray. The Holy Spirit is He, not it. And so we can call out to Him. We can also praise Him for the faith that He has created in our hearts. We can ask Him to fill us more and more and to lead us with the Word. We can pray to the Holy Spirit and we can ask Him to put more light on our way through the Holy Scriptures. And when we don't know what to pray or what to say, or when we cannot pray because of old age or because of declining health. 
we can also look to the Holy Spirit and call out for His help. Romans 8, 26-27 says, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Isn't it encouraging to know that? We have also the Holy Spirit on our side when it comes to prayer. And so as we pray, we must ensure that we have the proper address, that we call upon the only true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And for our prayers to please God, we also need the Holy Spirit to lead us with His Word to a proper assessment or evaluation of ourselves. The Catechism says that we must thoroughly know our need and misery so that we may humble ourselves before God. Sometimes I wonder if we really believe that. Sometimes I wonder if I really believe that. Do I endeavor to thoroughly know my need and misery? Do I have to? Is this something that I should spend a lot of time on? Now, brothers and sisters, we might all have our own feelings or emotions about this matter, but I encourage you to try and set those aside. Earlier we mentioned Martin Luther and his little puppy. Well, Martin Luther also wrote a lot of songs, and he had a a song, a little ditty. I think it was set to music, but I don't know the tune. It goes, feelings come and feelings go and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the Word of God. Nothing else is worth believing. In other words, don't build your life before God on the basis of your feelings. We need to go to Scripture and see what it says and humbly submit to what it says. And so what does the Bible teach about this subject? Well, we could start with Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings 8. Need and misery, they do feature prominently in this prayer. I think you notice that. Take one example, what Solomon says in verse 46. He acknowledges that there is no one who does not sin before God. He had said that at an earlier point in the prayer as well. You know what that means? There is no one who does not sin before God. It means that all people have a need for forgiveness. All people are in a miserable state because God is holy. And by themselves, they are not. But Solomon doesn't stop there. He says that when the people know their need and misery, and when they are honest about it and they take it on their lips and they confess it before God, He asks God to hear and to forgive, and He fully expects that God will do that. 
What is clear is that knowing one's need and misery is meant to lead one to humility before God. Want to talk about posture in prayer? The place to start with posture is the posture of your heart. And the proper posture of your heart for prayer is humility. Here too, think of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. Two men, the Lord Jesus tells us, went up to the temple to pray. The one, a Pharisee, extolled his own virtues and allowed prayer, allowed prayer intended to be heard by all those around him. The Pharisee, he was not a sinner. He was a righteous man, at least in his own eyes. And then Jesus tells us there was the tax collector, scum of the earth extraordinaire. He stood in a corner of the temple and he beat his breast saying, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Now what did Jesus say at the conclusion of the parable? I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Knowing our need and misery is also the reason why the Lord Jesus himself taught us to pray for the forgiveness of our sins. Now we're going to hear more about that when we get to the fifth petition. But for now, just note that it's there. And ask yourself, why? Why did the Lord Jesus put that in His model prayer? Well, it's there to remind us of our need for a Savior. To keep us turning to the cross of Jesus Christ every day. Now, there are many more passages that we could consider on this point, but I'm just going to take a couple of more. In Isaiah 6, well-known passage. I love that passage. I bring it up all the time. I think it's important for us to be familiar with that passage. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah is brought into the throne room of God. Isaiah, a faithful Israelite prophet. But as he comes into God's presence... What is his posture at that moment? Is he like the Pharisee or the tax collector? Verse 5 tells us what he said in Isaiah 6. Woe to me! I am ruined! I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty! Now when we pray, we don't come into God's presence the, the way that Isaiah did. At least we don't have the same visual effects and so forth. Nevertheless, his posture is the right one. The posture of his heart is humility and acknowledgement of one's status apart from grace. 
Going a little further in the book of Isaiah, in fact, going to right to the end of the book, in the last chapter, chapter 66, we read these words from God in verse 2. God says, This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Forget about self-esteem. Do you want to be the object of God's esteem? Do you want to be valued by God? Then you must thoroughly know your need and misery and humble yourself before Him. Now you might say, okay, great pastor, how do we do that? Well, there are two parts to knowing our need and misery And they belong together. They have to be together. Separate them, you run into all kinds of problems. The first part is to reflect carefully on and to study diligently who your God is. You have to be impressed with Him. Be impressed with all of His attributes Be impressed also with that one attribute that defines and sharpens all the others, which is His holiness. You must be entirely God-besotted, to use an old expression, obsessed with God. And that happens as you spend time reading and studying the Scriptures. And as you come to know your God and His holiness as you come to be more and more impressed with Him, you know what your problem is. Your problem is God. Because God is holy and you are not. Besides viciously attacking it and punishing it, God will not have anything to do with sin. And you and I have everything to do with sin. Now lately I've been reading Peter Brown's biography of the great church father Augustine of Hippo. Augustine lived during the 4th and 5th century after Christ. And at a certain point, Augustine decided to try and live the monastic life. He had hoped that life as a monk would help him to deal with the sin in his life that he would be able to grow in sanctification by entering a monastery, that he could deal especially with his sexual lusts. However, he was disappointed to find out something different. He was disappointed to find out that while he could now spend weeks with all his brother monks, weeks without seeing a woman live and in person, He continued to struggle in his dreams at night. Not only that, but he either became more aware of other sins in his life or other sins were taking hold of him. He noticed his greed. He noticed his pride. He became argumentative and angry and so on. Augustine thought that the monastic life would put sin to death in him, 
But instead, it simply awoke him to the sinfulness remaining in his heart. He could not escape. Isn't he a lot like you and me? God is holy. That's the first thing we have to recognize. And it has to penetrate our understanding so that it's not just a bland theological statement, but a truth that grips us. And yes, even terrifies us. The second thing we have to recognize is connected, and it's the fact that we are sinners. As much as we may grow in grace and knowledge, we will always be sinners so long as we live on this earth. And we have to keep repeating it to ourselves until Christ's return makes it no longer true. But then, loved ones, look also to your God again. The Holy One has a holy justice and a holy righteousness. But wonder of wonders, He also has a holy love. He has a holy grace in Jesus Christ. His holiness also sharpens those attributes. His love and grace are unlike anyone else's. Here is a God who in love predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ. Here is a God who gives us the opposite of what we deserve. So yes, we we need to look at ourselves carefully and thoroughly know our need and misery. In our day and age, I think we're in danger of skimping on, on that. Don't. As painful as it is, become more and more thoroughly convicted of your need for salvation. But at the same time, we have to balance that with the truth that the Bible does not teach us to fix our eyes on our need and misery. The Scriptures teach us to fix our eyes on Jesus. To focus on Him. Just as the Israelites focused and looked at the bronze serpent in the wilderness and they were healed. Now remember, they couldn't pretend that there was nothing wrong with them and just go to their tents. They had to really know their need. And if they didn't know their need, they were fooling themselves and they would die. But knowing their need and misery, being honest about it, led them to life by looking to the bronze serpent, which was a type of Christ. For us, we need to fix our eyes on Him, the reality, our Savior. You know, there is an old saying, and it's a a biblical one, for every one look we take at ourselves, we need to take ten looks to Christ. For every one look we take at ourselves, take ten looks to Christ. But don't kid yourself, we need that one careful look. Know your need and misery so that you can humble yourself before God and flee to the cross for your salvation. 
Know your need and misery so that you can have the proper posture before God in prayer. The posture of humility which pleases God. Now I know that this goes against the grain not only of our culture in general, but also that of the general Christian milieu in which we find ourselves. If we're honest, humility is not a strong point in Canadian culture. Nor is it a strong point in the general Christian ethos of our day. Instead, we hear the opposite message, don't we? We hear a lot about pride and self-esteem. Loved ones, this is the spirit of the age in which we live. It is not the teaching of Scripture. The Bible leads us to the kingdom where the way down is the way up. Where to be low is to be high. Where the broken heart is the healed heart. And the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. The kingdom of Christ revealed in Scripture is the place where the repenting soul is the victorious soul. Where to have nothing is to possess everything. Where to bear the cross is to wear the crown. And where to give is to receive. When we recognize these things and we have a proper self-assessment, then we can pray in a way that pleases God, in a way that will be heard by Him. And finally, we need to briefly consider the proper faith for a God-pleasing prayer. And here again, where else is our focus going to be but on Jesus Christ? We have God's promises in His Word that He will surely hear us because of Him. Think of what the Lord Jesus says in John 14. I will do whatever you ask in My name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask Me for anything in My name and I will do it. Note again, going back to something that we were talking about earlier, note again that we may ask the Lord Jesus. He tells us that we can pray to Him. And in John 16.23, He says, I tell you the truth, My Father will give you whatever you ask in My name. And there we pray to the Father, doing so in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now many of us have a good practice of ending our prayers with for Jesus' sake or words to that effect. Now I wonder how many of us actually think about what that means. We teach it to our children as well. What is that word sake? A little four-letter word, sake. What does that mean? Not a common English word that we use outside of prayer. It comes from Old English and it means something like out of consideration for or because of. And of course, there's nothing wrong with using that word. But let's be sure that we know what it means. So that when we we use it, we don't run the danger of using vain repetitions in our prayers. Just saying words because those are the words we've always said. 
fact, I would urge you to use a variety of endings in your prayers, to be self-conscious and deliberate about altering the endings of your prayers so that you make it explicit in your prayer that your faith is that God will hear your prayer because Christ is your Savior, because of what He has done in the past, because of what He is doing right now, what He will do in the future, because He's your Savior and He intercedes for you. Note well that the Catechism says that this is the firm foundation upon which we must rest. Faith in Christ is the way to God's ear and His heart. God doesn't care about how long your prayer is or how eloquent your prayer is. He doesn't pay attention to the number of your prayers or how well thought out they are. The thing that matters in God-pleasing prayer, the most important thing, is a sincere faith in Jesus Christ. God calls you, each and every one of you this morning, to rest on the firm foundation that you have access to the ear and heart of God through Christ your Savior. Believe in Him. And know that God will always hear you and He will give you everything He commands us to pray for, everything we need for body and soul. And so over the next few Sundays, again, we will be in the Holy Spirit's school of prayer. Again, we will sit at the feet of our Master, Jesus Christ, and have Him teach us the ABCs of prayer. Brothers and sisters, as we do this, as we go into this section, let's be, every one of us, humble and teachable students in this school. And right now, let's go to God in prayer and ask for His help in that. O Yahweh, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We call upon You, the one true God who reveals Himself in His Word. We call upon You, our faithful Father, who created us. We acknowledge You as the one who continues to support us day in and day out. We call upon You, our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ, thanking You for the salvation You came to bring. Lord Jesus, we adore You for calling us friends and brothers and for entering into our world and taking on our flesh. We call upon You, O Holy Spirit, and we thank You for the gift of faith. And we seek Your continued renewal in our lives. As part of that, please continue to teach us to pray. O Yahweh, our God in heaven, Teach us to know our need and misery. We pray that You would impress us more and more with Your holiness and help us to know ourselves so that we would always humble ourselves before You and seek our help outside of ourselves in Christ alone. Please give us more grace so that we would always rest on the firm foundation of Your grace in Christ, that You will always hear us because of Him. 
Indeed, Father, we do not deserve it, but we ask that You would hear our prayer because of Him and because of all that He has done for us and who He is for us. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.